0: All right, good morning again. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament and to chapter 8, please. Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. The topic, Nehemiah tells the Israelites listening to the reading of God's law to quit crying. The title of our message, You Can Hide Your Crying Eyes. I don't think it deserved a groan, whoever groaned. I go for groaners sometimes with that. This is a a second tier, but it's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. We're anxious, Lord, to get into your word. We're gonna read about the people in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, Lord, standing to listen to your word read for six or seven hours straight. They were so excited, Lord, to have it. We have that same excitement, Lord, and, and more because we know that you are going to minister to us from that word. You're going to teach us about your grace and the mercy that we need in time of need and any other thing that's going on in our hearts and lives. Use this text in a powerful way today, we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Tony Stark quipped, everything special about you came from a bottle. He was insulting Steve Rogers, whom a super serum transformed into super soldier Captain America the first Avenger. We're familiar with sports stars seeking super serum to supercharge skill and strength. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds were serum enhanced and thereby exhibited metahuman strength to more often hit a baseball very, very far. In our text today, we're gonna encounter the amazing phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is joy a spiritual super serum that gets us pumped up on our journey homeward? we'll need to determine what the Holy Spirit might have meant when he inspired Nehemiah to say it to the returnees and to record it for future generations of believers like us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the Lord's joy is your salvation. And number two, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's take a look at salvation in verses one through 12. Let me tell you up front, right away how we are going to define the joy of the Lord so you're not in any suspense it is the joy he has. It is the joy of the Lord, not joy from the Lord. It is his joy. Yes, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's produced in believers as we abide in Jesus Christ. And yes, believers are commanded, rejoice in the Lord always. The fruit of joy and the choice to rejoice, those manifestations of joy do not in any way contradict the biblical fact that Jesus has his own joy. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, we read about it. The writer there in verse two of chapter 12 says, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A joy was set before Jesus that would be his only after he endured the cross. Since there can be disagreement among scholars as to precisely what the Holy Spirit intended, I'll quote a few godly men. Citing scripture along the way, Warren Wearsby comes to this conclusion. He says, the joy that was set before him, would include Jesus completing the Father's will, his resurrection and exaltation, and his joy in presenting believers to the Father in glory. William MacDonald put it this way. He kept his eyes fixed on the coming glory when all the redeemed would be gathered with him eternally. And another commentator said, Jesus pursued the greatest imaginable joy, namely the joy of being exalted to God's right hand in the assembly of a redeemed people. Each of those men and others emphasized Jesus' joy in believers being redeemed and assembled with him forever. And that's why I don't think it's going too far to say that you who are in Christ, you are the Lord's joy. Your salvation was what was after the cross that Jesus endured. And it brings him joy to offer that salvation and to see folks saved. What Jesus did in obedience to his father, he did to be the savior of all men, especially those who believe. His work culminates in salvation for all those who do call upon his name. We read twice in the gospel of Luke that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. While I'm sure angels rejoice, they get out their kazoos and start to go for it. No? Why couldn't an angel play a kazoo? You don't know that they do. You don't know that they don't. That's my guess. By the way, we have some shofars, a couple of shofars here. And uh, we're gonna have a contest one time because almost nobody can play the shofar. You know what a shofar is? The big ram's horn that they do in Israel? That's what mine sounds like when I play, but the only person I know for sure who can do it is my grandson, Gene Jr. He is a natural on the shofar. <laughs> if you follow me on Instagram, you saw, he, we had him do a mock you know, call to worship up in the balcony. It went pretty well. So. And by the way, since we're on this subject, since I'm on this subject, <laughs> I'm only 60 posts away from my 5,000th Instagram post. And that, no, wait, <laughs> That should happen in a few days, <laughs> so I might have you help me celebrate. If, if I don't get there by next Sunday, I think I'll take a picture of, like, you know, a selfie with me and the congregation for my 5,000 post. For my 3,000 post, I took a picture of a post and put the number 3,000 on it, which I thought was brilliant, but anyway. So this thing about the angels and their kazoos, Jesus said there'd be joy in their presence, He didn't say necessarily the angels rejoiced. I think they probably do, and that's what we think. He said there would be joy in their presence. Who's present with the angels? He is. I think they witness his joy when individuals get saved because it's what he died for and accomplished the Father's will to produce. And so our text begins with the public reading of scripture in verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel. Nehemiah was the builder, Ezra was the builder upper. That's how God gifted them in their unique callings. If you're a Christian you're called and you're gifted but there's gonna be times when regardless of your gift from the Lord, you have to step up and fill a spiritual gap. Timothy was a pastor, but the apostle Paul encouraged him to do the work of an evangelist. So there's a gift of evangelism. People like Billy Graham have it. Now, you don't have to be famous. I mean, a lot of people have it, but you see it with Billy Graham a lot. I mean, Billy Graham would get up when he was alive and did his, uh, his uh, you know, stadium crusades. He'd get up and he would say, Jesus loves you. He died for you, he rose from the dead. Now come on down. And thousands of people over time, millions of people came down in response to something that was so simple, but so powerful because he had that gift. Uh, And and it's it's an amazing thing when you see a person like that. And and most of us, I would think, we don't have the gift of an evangelist. Uh, But Timothy was a pastor, young pastor in the New Testament, pastor at Ephesus. The apostle Paul encouraged him, do the work of an evangelist. And so we are all called to that same thing and other things that maybe we're not gifted to do, but if it needs to take place, we can stand in the gap and trust the Lord to bless us. And so stir up your gift or gifts, but remain open and flexible to step up and serve whenever and wherever it's needed. Verse two, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. I want you to think of this as a one-day, all-day outdoor Bible conference that they called because that's essentially what it was. All who could hear with understanding means young adults and children who could pay attention and understand. I think uh, sometimes we make too much of this verse, uh, whether we interpret it as being inclusive of children or restrictive of them. Doesn't set a precedent either way. It wasn't a normal church service. And so we are free in the Lord to determine our own inclusions or restrictions um we 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 try really hard to accommodate everybody's feelings in terms of children and 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 so uh, the only place we really try to exclude and I'm looking around to make sure I don't say anything dumb but the only place we try and exclude children is this main sanctuary where there could be an opportunity for distraction. But there's the balcony, there's the foyer, there's other rooms, there's the courtyard. There's lots of places for people who don't want to leave their children in the Sunday school or or the children's ministry. And and I respect that, I understand that. Uh, But the truth is, and you know what? I'm not easily distracted, I see that. But uh, anyway, I've, I'm really not. I mean, you, you, I could tell you stories all morning about pastors that I've served under and other guys that just, I mean, I see you scratching your nose right now and that you need to be removed, you know, that kind of a thing. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, Gene and I kind of like distractions because then we can make fun of you, and, which is what we really love to do. But anyway, um, so it's not that, it's not me. Uh, it's that we, you know, everybody thinks their four-year-old is able to sit under the teaching of the word of God because their four-year-old is filled with the spirit and is a genius on the level of Einstein. And they're not. They start playing with the keys. They start screaming. You don't like it when you're out. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you like it when you're at the movies and somebody brings a baby and I want to kill myself practically. <laughs> I start taking bets on how, off, how soon that baby's going to start to cry. And then how long they're gonna let it cry. And how long they're gonna stand next to me in the hallway letting it cry, going, shh, shh, it's okay, it's okay, shh. Anyway, (laughs) Ah, that was a cathartic moment for me. I appreciate you letting me get that (laughs) off my chest. So, verse three, then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Conferences or retreats usually have a theme. For this one, I'd suggest first five, since they read the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch, or maybe five talking. Get it? Remember the Bee Gees, jive talking? Who remembers the Bee Gees? Raise your hand so I know who I'm dealing with here. All right. Jive talking. <laughs> it's one of the great songs of the disco era, which should have never happened. But anyway, (laughs) so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood 13 guys with hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names. Uh, Take a few seconds and read them for yourself. All right, now that's good enough. So they built a raised platform large enough to easily accommodate at least these 14 men. It's been suggested these other guys took turns with Ezra reading portions of the law of Moses. Verse five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Biblical acoustics always amaze me. I can't hear my television in my living room 10 feet away from it. I have to put the captions on. It's a catch-22 because then I know what's being said but I'm not looking at the action, I'm just reading. You know, what's fun about reading captions, though, is how many times they're wrong and, and some of the stupid translation. And the, the best part is how they describe the music, tense music, all right? Upbeat, happy guitar playing, okay? And so anyway, uh, but here, these, Ezra's talking, Ezra and these guys, they're talking to tens of thousands of people And all of them can hear and see. I'm sure the acoustics were great, but this sounds like it's uh, sort of a a God thing as well. And so we trust that the Lord uh, was involved with this. The people stood in reverence to the word. Again, that's not a precedent. We might want to stand for a reading of scripture. We might not. Uh, For example, the way a lot of people teach the word, like I'm doing, instead of reading the text up front, we read it a verse at a time or a couple of verses at a time. That means you'd have to stand up now when I read Nehemiah 6.6 and then sit down. Then I'd comment and then you'd stand up again when we read verse seven and down, up and down, up and down. It'd be like a Catholic service, uh, (laughs) except for the kneeler you know, and the the crossing of yourself. I mean, that kind of a thing. And so uh, we have freedom in Christ as long as we're showing respect and reverence for the Lord and for his word. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. If this is chronological, Ezra opened the scroll, he prayed, then there was some sort of worship service. Maybe the 13 guys on the platform were their worship band, the Moses 13, or the first five faction. Or maybe, and this is, this is who I think they really were the Pentateuch tonics. (laughs) That was a good one. You got that? I was really happy with that. I got up and had a cup of coffee after I came up with that. But anyway, verse seven. Also, 13 more guys with hard pronounced Hebrew names, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. These 13 guys may have been Ezra's disciples, Together with the Levites, they mingled with the crowd, clarifying and answering questions. Now, I, didn't, I don't think they did this while the reading was taking place, so there must have been pauses during the reading. Think of these as breakout groups that received more focus application. If you go to a retreat anymore, uh, it's common, you know, the big group group The assembly gets together, and then they have little classes that you can choose from, breakout groups where it's a little bit more intimate and something is further explained or taught. And so these guys, this is an actually very well-planned conference that they're having. It's not just some spontaneous reading of the word of God. Uh, it, It had some planning to it. They built a platform for it. They had 26 helpers plus the Levites, and they knew what they were about. And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. The book means the first five books. We see it as different, we see the Bible as different books, but as one book. And so that's what we're talking about here. An onlooker would conclude that these were people who understood that everything needed for life and godliness was to be found in this book. They were not interested in comparative religion or in any philosophy of men. This is what they wanted to read and understand and study and live by. It says here, they read, they gave the sense by explaining the text in its context and they helped to understand and that would include making application. What a simple method, read, explain and apply. But it's powerful, we should do no less. Every time the the word of God is taught, uh, or exposed, we should we should uh, endeavor to do those things. Read it. Don't don't beg off from not reading it unless it's a list of crazy names that just make you tongue-tied. Uh, and then uh, explain it. There are things they would need a lot of explanation because this was their history and most of them knew it. Uh, but we do need more explanation because we're not in the centuries when this uh, was written, and there's a lot of cultural things that we can understand and uh, make application. Verse nine, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. God's covenant with Israel included unconditional and conditional promises. The Promised Land, for example, was granted to Israel unconditionally. It belongs to the nation of Israel. That's why you see them back today in the Promised Land after centuries of being scattered, because God kept his unconditional promise to Abraham. The possession of and the enjoyment of the Promised Land, however, was conditional upon their obedience. Standing there, not far removed from their 70 year captivity in Babylon, with Jerusalem largely uninhabited and a lesser temple, it was easy to mourn and weep, hearing the law read and realizing how far short they had fallen and what life could have been if they and previous generations had simply obeyed the law. Nehemiah straight up told them, Stop crying. Did your dad ever tell you to stop crying? And then you know what he said afterwards, right? Or I'll give you something to cry about. That was my dad's entire disciplinary philosophy. That's all. And my dad only actually hit me one time in my life, and it didn't hurt, and it actually was a heel kick because I was in bed, and he came down and kicked me and yelled at me. But anyway... Uh, And to his credit, I I was in junior high and he caught me with marijuana. Actually, my little brother caught me. Something was up. I just usually was more careful than that. But anyway, (laughs) I lied my way out of it, but it was still awkward whenever those anti-drug commercials came on TV. And I sat there with my mom and dad and my three brothers listening to people talk about how this is your brain on dope. And, uh, you know, they still bring it up. Which, now that I'm older, I can say you don't know the half of it. But anyway, uh, so, you know, I respect... But this was my dad's philosophy, and it worked. It got me to where I am today. (laughs) (laughs) Nehemiah doesn't come across like that. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying, hey, quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. No. This is a... I think it's a supernatural word of wisdom. The Holy Spirit was active in the lives of these guys... And he told them what to say. Now, just because these guys didn't have the indwelling of the spirit, we have to remember the spirit was active in their midst. And this is a word of wisdom. It's what to say uh, in a certain situation that is the wisdom of God. And I believe, you know, based on the fact that Nehemiah is gonna tell thousands of people to quit crying, imagine, would you, 10,000, let's say, maybe 20,000 people are crying crying Do you think that just your personal power is enough to, quit crying? Oh, okay. And so I think God put it on his heart and he obeyed and people quit crying. Now, it's probably not appropriate for us normally to tell others to stop crying. We are told to weep with those who weep and so we should. You can't always encourage mourners that Jesus wipes away their tears and he saves them in a bottle. That's from Psalm 56. And so there's ways to minister to people, but I don't recommend on a regular basis that you, you know, because you think it's appropriate, you tell people to stop crying. Uh, Now, if you receive a word of wisdom and you have that gift, that's one thing. But uh, so he told all these thousands of people, they stopped crying, just like that. As the newsboys like to say, it's a spirit thing. And so verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Don't sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The reading of the law was not intended to produce sorrow, but to renew hope. Despite Israel's failures, God was in their midst. They were back in the land they were building. He was keeping his promises to his special nation. It was a time for feasting, a time for rejoicing this is just interesting since the law prohibited the eating of the fat this sounds like an idiom eat the fat drink the sweet or as we might say let's get this party started so the next time you want to go to dinner with some of your friends say hey when are we going to eat the fat and drink the sweet but it has to be somebody that hasn't heard this sermon so you can see what kind of an effect that has i dare you i double dog dare you to do that <laughs> So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy, do not be grieved. The Levites enforced the no weeping rule. Circulating among the crowd, they'd hear sniffling and rush to it with these words. You there, crying, snap out of it. And the person would. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Quit crying, feast, share your feast, rejoice. That was the application of the first five books of scripture that day. That was the take home for the nation of Israel. Every Sunday, we reserve time as we are closing for you to contemplate a take home for you from God. He brings you here to minister his grace to you. Make sure you leave knowing more about it and him. And sometimes that take home will be something that seems super profound. Sometimes it'll be something that seems simple but is powerful to you. Like I was reading this and I thought, so they read the first five books of the Bible. You think somebody would say, evolution's a lie. We're young earth creationists or something like that. You know, and, and all these te- technical things along the way. Of course, they wouldn't say that because there was no theory of evolution you realize back then. They were all creationists. I just made that up. But anyway, there, there, there's nothing profound about what they, they say, oh, oh, we should rejoice and have a feast and minister to others. It's, the, it's simple. You would think something greater would come out of the first five books of the Bible, but on that day, that was the greatest thing that they could comprehend, the greatest thing that they could do as a nation, and God was pleased by it. And so make sure you leave knowing more about Jesus than when you came in. You should abide in Jesus and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, including joy. You should choose to rejoice always. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice as a choice. And you should dwell on the truth that you are the joy of Jesus. You are what he obtained when he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let that sink in, it's a beautiful thing. In verses 13 through 18, the joy of the Lord is your strength. There are 1,500 national days, national weeks, or national months on the calendar. We're celebrating Memorial Day tomorrow. Today, May 26th, some of your transcripts have this wrong because I got my dates confused. Today, May 26th, is National Blueberry Cheesecake Day and <laughs> National Paper Airplane Appreciation Day. Tomorrow, May 27th, though we're celebrating Memorial Day, is also National Cellophane Tape Day and National Grape Popsicle Day. In our text, the Jews in and around Jerusalem were in a holiday season. It was their seventh month. They were supposed to observe the Feast of Trumpets the first day, the Day of Atonement on the 10th day, and the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days from the 15th day until the 21st day. So verse 13 Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. The Bible conference added a second day. That sometimes happens when there is revival. The meetings are extended. You read about that in the history of revival. Somebody like Charles Finney will come to a city And the meetings are so uh, profoundly effective that they just stay there for weeks and sometimes months as entire populations come to Christ. Bars shut down, police have nothing to do, so they form bands. And I mean, it's an amazing thing. The history of revival. Uh, You you read it and you think, that couldn't have happened just a couple of hundred years ago. Somebody would have told us about that. But they don't. And so revival is, is, uh, you know, they add to the meetings because the Lord is moving. Maybe they heard about the feasts in the reading the day before and they returned to that portion of scripture to know more about it because they realized they hadn't been keeping these feasts. Then they checked their calendar and understood that Tabernacles was coming up in a few days. It'd be like you forgetting Christmas and then maybe two weeks before Christmas you think, wow, even though decorations have been out since July, I forgot about Christmas. And now you're up against it. Actually, it's even worse than that. I can't even think of an example, but so they, they were excited and a little bit you know, hesitant at the same time, but they, they wanted to get this calendar thing going. And so verse 15, they read that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches and branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. As you probably know, during tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, it's also called, or Succoth, the Jews make makeshift, uh, they build makeshift shelters from branches and they camp outdoors. It's to commemorate the exodus of their ancestors when they were miraculously delivered from Egypt and then brought through the wilderness into the promised land. And so it's like camping out in the backyard. You probably have done that if you have kids or grandkids, although we camp out in the living room, uh, My backyard, well, there's not really much backyard. It's all concrete, but I wouldn't do it anyway because of gophers. But anyway, uh, gophers at night, vicious. Verse 16, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. Until that day, the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. If you remember when we went through Ezra, there was a partial observance of the Feast of Tabernacles kept by the first exiles who returned with him. But before that, it had been a 1,000 years since the Jews last celebrated Tabernacles. a 1,000 years since they had observed the calendar God gave them. When we say that God is patient with his people, we mean it. Uh, I mean, that's a long time for them to ignore God's calendar. Verse 18, also day by day from the first day until the last day he read from the book of the law and they kept the fee seven days and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. They just heard all five books read a few days before but they couldn't get enough of it. Revival. Revival. It's marked by many things, and people always wanna key in on some of the more odd things that happen. Uh, you know, it, it, When there's genuine revival, the Holy Spirit can, we call it, move in a way that is unusual, but not in a way that's unscriptural, uh, not in a crazy way. Today, people say there's revivals, and they say gold dust is falling out of the sky. And different things like that. There's a lot of weird things going on out there. Have you realized that? Have you heard? This is a real thing. I know because my son told me, and so I can trust him. Have you heard of grave sucking? (laughs) It's a real thing. Is it right? I got the terminology right. Okay. Because I'm not always with it. But there's a thing now called grave sucking where you go out and you lay on the grave of a deceased believer to get the residual spirit that they have. And you, you suck their grave, uh, basically. And Christian, Christians are doing this, probably Christians you know. We're gonna organize a cemetery party. <laughs> so there's stuff out there that just would, we protect you from this stuff, you know? <laughs> we are not going to introduce grave sucking or anything else weird. And so revival, that's not revival. When people say, oh, the Holy Spirit had me jump out a window. Uh, No, I'm sorry. But there can be unusual manifestations of of the Holy Spirit. But one thing that is always key to revival, there is a return to the absolute authority and obedience to God's word. Sometimes people call revival re-Bible. It sounds funny, but that's essentially what it is. And it affects Christians. Revival isn't a Billy Graham crusade. Or Greg Laurie at a harvest crusade, or, or anything. It's not evangelism. Revival is the church getting on board with God's program in a very profound way. And as, as good as our church is, we could use revival. All churches could use revival. Uh, because we don't see this, like, we're going to finish today, and, and that's okay. This is not pejorative because I'm part of it, but we'll finish the service today and we'll all go our separate ways. Probably nobody is gonna sit here. You might now, just to be funny, but probably nobody's gonna sit here and say, I, I need more of the word. You can't leave. You have to keep teaching and teaching and teaching like Paul did for six hours overnight at Troas. And people aren't gonna just start coming in the door. Like, where'd you guys come from? We don't know. But God, we, we just felt like we were drawn to this place. And we're, we're probably not gonna have a week of meetings every day like that, uh, the Lord has to move. Does prayer bring revival or does revival bring prayer? I don't know. Uh, but that's what we're talking about. In the meantime, trust that to the Lord. He brings revival when he wants. We just need to concentrate on having a personal revival in our own lives and make sure that the things we read in Scripture, we do and we obey because it's the Lord talking to us. And I know that's the heart that all of us have. We wouldn't be here today if that wasn't our heart. And so it's not a, It's not a negative exhortation, it's a positive one. It's a reminder that, yeah, you know, Lord, I really do wanna do all the things that you tell me to do. I wanna receive all the life and godliness that you have for me in scripture. If you want there to be a revival, if you want that to happen, then we're open to that. How is the joy of the Lord your strength? Think of a few things that accompany our salvation. If the joy of the Lord is your salvation and the salvation of those who trust him, then think of a few things that accompany our salvation. I mean, we could be here all day thinking of these, but here are some big ones. Since we are saved, we are certain that he will complete the good work he has begun in us. Since we are saved, we are confident that all things will work together for the good. Uh, I mean, we know that's true. As an aside, I like to point out, sometimes we are impatient about all things working together for the good. I think all things working together for the good involves a lot of supernatural things we'll never see until we get to heaven and it can involve a long period of time in your life. We're impatient. We always want things to work together for the good right now. We wanna know that this tragedy happened and as a result, we established this foundation or this something or whatever. I'm okay with that. I'm not against that. I mean, you know, I'm not that much of a monster. You know, we can do those things, but as long as the motivation is from the Lord. We can't make good come out of the situations that we're in that we wish we weren't. But the Lord can, and sometimes it takes time for that to reveal itself. And so just, uh, just receive that promise and know that it's true. Since we are saved, we comprehend that we will awake in his likeness, having now been predestined to be conformed into Jesus' image. And since we are saved, we are convinced that our light affliction is but for a moment that it works for us a far and more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So many things like that that we are convinced of that give us strength for daily living because of what Jesus has done for us. I may at times identify with the future martyrs of the great tribulation who cry out, how long, O Lord? I get impatient, you get impatient. We don't, nobody wants to suffer. At some points, you don't even wanna be on this planet because it's so awful. But I do know that no weapon against me can prosper and that nothing and no one can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that, that is real strength. That is spiritual strength to endure. Jesus endured for us, and we are enabled to endure for him and to represent him. And that joy is our strength. It doesn't really do it justice to call it super serum, but the joy of the Lord, that is real strength for living. Let's pray.